Welcome right back to the Meng Meng Podcast. On this episode, I am super excited to have Tiffany Yu with me. Tiffany is a former investment banker turned entrepreneur, and currently she runs a <clears throat> sorry she runs an organization called Diversibility, which is an organization focused on promoting and elevating the overall disabled uh, community. But I'm not going to do much of introducing her since she'll probably do a ten times better job than I am. Whatever I'm saying right now, but Tiffany, it's great to have you on. Hi, thanks so much, Andrew. Yeah, so why don't you just start this out, walk through the audience, kind of who you are, your background, and, you know, how you got to where you are today. Sure. So I grew up in Maryland suburbia, like 20 minutes outside of D.C. My dad is a Taiwanese immigrant, and my mom is a refugee from the Vietnam War. A big turning point in my life happened when I was nine on the way home from dropping my mom off at the airport for a business trip. My dad lost control of the car. We ended up getting into a car accident. He unfortunately passed away, and I acquired a slew of injuries, including breaking a couple bones in one of my legs, permanently paralyzing one of my arms, and later being diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And part of why I open by sharing that I'm the daughter of Asian immigrants is that in my family, it was internalized that we shouldn't share anything that might be seen as shameful. And so the and and the thinking behind that was that if if our if anything had happened that might make our family look bad, we might rub that bad luck onto off onto other people. So I had and so the car accident was seen as shameful. That's something that shouldn't be shared. The um, the fact that my dad passed away, and now the fact that I had an apparent disability, a visible disability, and so I wore long sleeves all the time to hide my arm. I told everyone my dad was away on a trip, and I didn't tell anyone about the details of the car accident. And I actually think that that's what exacerbated what became a PTSD diagnosis, because I didn't let this nine-year-old girl kind of give her the space to heal and process her trauma. So fast forward, uh, I studied finance and accounting in college at Georgetown, and and I don't, you know, actually, I have this funny story of my freshman year, my balance sheet balancing <laughs> on my final exam in my accounting class. And I got so excited. And that's actually why I felt like I wanted to do something in the financial services realm. So I ended up doing a couple of internships. I did one after my sophomore year at UBS. And I'm actually grateful that I did that because who would have known that the 08 crash slash recession would happen? Yeah. Um, and after that, I got an offer to return to UBS, but I also got an offer to go work at Goldman Sachs. And so I did the summer after my junior year at Goldman and then returned there full time for a few years and worked in different financial services roles up until about 2016, 2017. And then after getting fired from a startup job in 2017, I decided to explore what it would look like to pursue full-time disability advocacy and entrepreneurship. And that day was actually March 3rd, 2017. So when we're recording, this has actually been now over six years since I've been oh, doing wow. the, the current disability work that I do now. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, let's, let's dive right into it. Like how has, I want, I want to hop into the whole thing about like you work in investment banking as well, but I just want to talk about the disability, um, the disability they have real quick. Um, do you mind sharing the audience kind of like, what was the disability that you suffer or still, still have at this current moment? And how was it like working with that disability in like corporate America overall? 
Yeah, so I would, uh, so the broken bones in my leg healed, bones will heal. Uh, nerve injuries take much longer to heal and oftentimes don't ever fully recover in the same way. So what I have is known as a brachial plexus injury. It's a type of spinal cord injury, so at the neck, mm. which means that my arm is paralyzed. So interestingly enough, my dominant arm, my dominant hand, like the one that I had learned to write, uh, is the one that became paralyzed. And so I had to relearn how to write with my non-dominant hand. And also thinking about banking and work, I had to type with one hand and carry pitch books with one hand. And so one of the things that I actually did, the first job that I ever had, I got, um, and so again, this is still in Maryland, I got a job transcribing tapes at an allergist's office. And tapes? I actually what, what do you mean by tapes? Like oh, so he would so he would see a patient and then he would record all the vitals into like a tape recorder and then I would listen to oh, this them. Is old and I would school. Put, this is old school. <laughs> this is yeah, because because I I remember when we caught up, Andrew. I'm I'm a little bit older than you, so this is uh this has to be 2000, 2005, yeah, two thousand five, two thousand four, two thousand five timeframe. Mm. My first paid job ever. I'm transcribing tapes recorded tapes <laughs> uh, at an allergist's office. And, you know, now looking back, I think I think I didn't realize it at the time. I was like, oh, I just want to make some money. But now looking back, I was like, oh, this is a job that actually taught me how to get better at typing with one hand. Mm. The other thing that I'll share too is because the car accident happened when I was in fourth grade, that was just about the time that I was learning how to type. You know, I, I would say that my generation is the generation that became digital natives, like as adults. Yeah. Like we didn't have like computers and the internet. Yeah, we're the prime prime millennial. Yeah. Um, we didn't have like the internet and social media and all of that stuff until like 2010, like until I was like well into high school. So, um, so yeah, so I, so because the car accident happened like when I was in fourth grade, I still hadn't learned how to type. And so I actually thought that because I hadn't learned yet how to type with two hands, mm -hmm. just learning from the get-go how to type with one hand made it a little bit easier. But but yeah, I learned how to navigate in my own way. You know, I'm a left-handed handshaker as well. And I'm sure you know, Andrew, going to lots and lots of networking sessions, the hand the handshake in, in banking and in financial services is so important. Yeah. And so right off the bat, I, I wouldn't necessarily disclose like, hey, my arm is paralyzed, but people would know, like there would be a reason why I was shaking your hand with my left hand. Mm. Um, and so, and so I'm really grateful. I don't know. I, I actually think that there are many micro points of my disability advocacy that came out during my time at Goldman, whether it was having to, having to carry 40 pitch books to a meeting in Switzerland, <laughs> but, you know, putting them all into my roller luggage, you know, and being able to transport them that way. Um, to having an ergonomic assessment done of my desk area and having the ergonomic specialist ask me if I could benefit from speech-to-text technology. Um, and there were all these moments that, and, and then even, you know, at Goldman, I was involved, I was pretty actively involved in their disability employee resource group. And that actually became the inspiration for all of the work that I do now because it made me really think about Hey, for those of us who don't get to work at places like Goldman and Bloomberg or are at smaller startups that don't have these employee resource networks or affinity groups or communities that we can plug into, where do we go to find community? Mm -hmm. 
What was it like breaking into investment banking slash Goldman Sachs back in like 2009? Was there also, did they also have like, I guess, diversity hire back then? Or was it everyone just like, everyone went through the same process? You know, that's a great question. So I actually, I did something that maybe I, in retrospect, so I'll share what I did. So I actually studied abroad spring of my junior year. I studied abroad in China. Um, because not only did I major in finance and accounting, I also minored in Chinese language mm-hmm. and Asian studies. So spring of your junior year, for probably many of your listeners, is when prime recruiting season happens. Yeah. But I <laughs> and sophomore I had sophomore year now, by the way. It's sophomore year now. Like people rec- Oh, is it? People recruit for the junior year internship, sophomore year spring. So right now, as a sophomore, you're recruiting for next summer's internship. Oh, interesting. Is that, is that insane? Interesting. Is that insane? Well, what was what was fascinating to me <clears throat> was I would tell people that I was studying abroad in the spring this of my junior year. And they would be like, Oh, but what are you gonna do about your summer internship? <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, Can you be more excited that I'm like going to mainland China yeah. for what the about first your time career, ever? you know? <laughs> yeah, what about your career? So but I also think it was a different time. You know, I think about as millennials. Every coming of age moment that we have had in our lives has been paired with some economic volatility. Mm -hmm. So right when I was, actually when I was in middle school, that's when like the, or like when I was born, that's when the the 80s recession happened. Mm -hmm. And then the dot-com boom happened like right as I was finishing middle school, going to high school. And then when, when, when I, when most of us graduated from college, we were in the middle of a recession and now we're kind of you know, a house. in right, trying to buy a house at yeah, this stage. And, yeah. <laughs> and now at this stage in 2023, many of us are considered like mid to senior level career, but we're starting a family, trying to buy a house. And the economic climate is also volatile as well. Yeah. And so I, I, I just wanted to highlight that, that that was the environment. And that's why people, I think, were more concerned about my career. But I also think, you know, I will share something that happened before I got my sophomore internship at UBS was I also received a State Department scholarship to learn Mandarin in Harbin like that summer. And that was like a pretty prestigious, um, a pretty prestigious opportunity as well. Yeah. And I was actually really torn. Do I do the UBS internship or do I continue to deepen my understanding and my study of the Chinese language? Mm-hmm. And I remember asking my mentor and she said, 10 years from now, are you going to look back and regret not going to China? Or 10 years from now, are you going to regret, are you going to look back and regret not having worked at UBS? And what's fascinating is none of us knew that the 08 recession was going to happen. And everything now in retrospect, and I didn't know this at the time, but that sophomore internship secured my junior internship that made it so that in a recession period, I not only had a backup plan, which was going back to UBS, I could now be a competitive candidate that these other banks were like, oh, well, if UBS wanted Tiffany, like maybe we should look at Tiffany too and interview her. So the interview process that I went through was the study abroad interview process. So my interview happened in December of my junior year, like right before I went to study abroad. And then I didn't find out until the spring, like when most of the other offers went out as well. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Wait, so <laughs> it's kind of funny how like we're talking about... Um, you know, you went into the thing that kind of screwed over the economy back in like 2008, 2009. But 
but banks were hiring back then. Like, to, like you, I think you graduated in 2009, right? Like literally the year after the whole entire financial crisis. But like banks were still hiring like in the year 2009. Like, what, what was that environment uh, like? Oh, so, uh, so, so I graduated in 2010. So oh. in 29, a lot of my a lot of my classmates did have their offers rescinded. So I was so in 2010, like as I was entering the workforce full time, banks banks were still hiring. But you know what's funny, Andrew, is I had a lot of people come to me and they said, Tiffany, I don't like where you're working. You know, th- this was the cause of the 08 crisis, like <laughs> all of these things. And I'm just and here I am like 20, 21 years old. I just got a job. You know, I'm not really thinking about the macro of the, ethics, of the whole ecosystem. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm trying to make money here, all right? Like chill out. <laughs> <laughs> to, well, I'm 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 trying to yeah, I'm trying to just start my career. Yeah. Um and I'm and I'm not Lloyd Blank Fine. Yeah. You know, I'm not Jamie Diamond. Like I'm like no one knows who I am. Yeah. Uh and yeah, so um It's a different department too. I, different department. You you weren't in mortgage backed securities, all right. You were in healthcare. All right. <laughs> you are you are but but I Go ahead. I, I mean I also think about like an Asian disabled woman getting a job in financial services. Like one of the other things I'll share is, you know, you asked about like diversity hiring. And I think there were a couple of initiatives, but there wasn't really one. I don't think there was really one that was centered around like Asian people. I mean, there was one around women. um, And I think we were only starting to see the beginning around kind of disability inclusion in these banks. Mm. But one of, but yeah, I mean, I, I will say that after I got my job at Goldman, the number of informational interviews that I did with disabled college students who literally never thought that a career in financial services was something that they could do or how they would fit in was incredible, you know, and I I talk a lot about like, you can't be what you can't see. And like, we can shit on, we can shit on where I started my career all you want. But like the fact that now I can point to, so many disabled friends who are now VP level at their banks or, you know, working their way up or like went through the analyst program makes me really proud. Um, even, even if, even if, you know, there are, you have, you have ethics questions. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a job in a day. I mean, people are like, for example, I used to work at Wells Fargo, right? And everyone's like, yo, uh, wasn't that the bank that like was trying to scam people? I'm just like, dude, number one, I didn't even know about it. Number two, it's like, all right, you're going to blame like a company with over 100,000 employees. Like every single person that works there is like a bad person. It's like, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but I mean, what was your experience like working in investment banking though? Um, like, did you like it? Um, like, what was it like in 2009? Like overall your experience? Yeah. So I was a summer intern in 2009. And, you know, looking back, you know, I remember when I was putting together my resume for all the private equity interviews, like I worked on over $14 billion of announced deals and I worked in the healthcare group. So at Goldman at the time, the healthcare group was known as the lifestyle group. So out of all the banking group, uh, we were known as the one that had a little bit of a better work-life balance. Um, And at the time, in 2010, I think Goldman was piloting a lot of initiatives around how to make the analyst experience more sustainable, I Mm -hmm. guess is the word that I'll use. And so I was actually on something. I think this is still my resume. I was on something called a junior banker council. 
uh, oh. where a bunch of the bankers, a bunch of the analysts from all of the different groups got to meet with senior leadership to talk about how to make our experience better. So one of the things was like, unless it was absolutely required from, from a business perspective, like we were not allowed to work both weekend days. Uh, and I know since your audience is mostly people who want to break into banking, like working seven days a week is very normalized in the banking industry. Yeah. Um, but I want to say I went home, you know, I probably averaged going home between like 10, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. every night. But I always knew that I had like that Saturday or you could pick one of the weekend days yeah. that you didn't work. I think it was Saturday for us. And then on Sunday... I don't think you were allowed to work for more than eight hours that day. <laughs> um, so they were starting to put some some initiatives in place. Um, I mean, I only remember pulling an all-nighter once. Yeah, yeah. And that was like the morning of one of my deals getting announced. Um, but but yeah, I feel like I, I have a lot of fond memories. I, I will also caveat by saying that my last year at Goldman – I did a. I participated in one of the programs that they had called mobility, which means that you can move to a different department or a different group. Um, and I moved to the recruiting team. So I liked my experience in banking so much that I decided I wanted to recruit more kids to yeah. come to come into <laughs> banking as well. Um, but but yeah, it was it was a good it was a good experience overall. Um, I learned a lot. And I, I actually have a distinct memory of grabbing lunch with one of my mentors. Hmm. I think he was an associate at the time, and now he's a partner at the firm, which is pretty cool. But he said, he was like, he was like, my kids are young right now, but I would put them through the banking analyst program hmm. because you learn so much in that, you know, if it's two years, if you decide to stay longer, you learn so much in that two-year period that no one can take that away from you. And now, you know, as a disability advocate, people see, wow, she's an ex-investment banker who's now a disability advocate. How does that happen? Yeah. You know, and I also, you know, I think the other thing that's kind of interesting is that the unemployment numbers for disabled people are very low. Um, and I think that if I had grown up and internalized a lot of the messaging around my life outcomes and not being able to have a UBS or a Goldman or a Bloomberg on my resume, maybe like I wouldn't even be talking to you right now. Mm. And I'd still be trying to find a job, you know? And so I, I call these receipts. <laughs> this is like during the clubhouse phase, but like, I think I was able to collect these receipts early on in my career that now as a disability advocate, you know, trying to advocate for more disabled people getting hired, trying to figure out how we can create disability inclusive spaces at work. Like I can lean on those experiences in the corporate world as my own, lean on my own experiences as a disabled employee and bring that into a lot of the work that I'm doing now. You know, I, like, I, I'm also like on the side of like, even though I didn't have the greatest experience in investment banking, like I have many gripes about it that I've talked about extensively on my account. Uh, but I still agree with you in that sense too of like, I always tell people this, if I also go back in time, number one, I will again study engineering in college again because that was a learning lesson in itself. And number two, I'll go through banking again because I think the biggest thing you get out of investment banking isn't even like the financial knowledge you develop about like the economy, the markets. I think it's like the work ethic you learn and 
more important than that, you learn a lot about yourself. Because when you're put into a position in which you're under a lot of stress, you're under a lot of pressure, people around you are all very intense, all very like um, hard workers, you know, like A players, right? A lot of egos going on around there as well. You learn a lot about people management. You learn a lot about stress management. And also, I think most importantly, you learn about what you value in life. What's your priorities? Mm. You know, I think that I think that's I, one of the biggest things that I got away from banking. Can I add one other thing? Mm-hmm. So I know you I know you'd finished you finished your analyst program pretty recently, right? Uh two years ago. Yeah. Okay. Uh 2021. Yeah. Okay. So I finished my analyst program in 2012. So that was 11 years ago. And the other thing that has been so valuable has been my colleagues. Because my colleagues are not bankers anymore. Like I think about, actually, this is a fun story. No, yeah. In 2017. Yeah, I know. In 2017, after I got fired from from a startup job, I was then pursuing exploring what diversity might look like full time. And one of my friends that I met through banking, he was a year older than me. I think he worked in TMT, like technology, media, and telecom. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, Tiffany, I see the disability work that you're doing. And he was like, ex-Uber, now working at, like now building his own his own startup, like in the autonomous vehicle space. And he's like, can I hire you to come and talk about disability inclusion as we like continue to build our company? And after I did that with him, he, I mean, he paid me $5,000 for that. And I, I had never been paid that to do anything, <laughs> you know, like I had always been used to like a salaried job. Yeah. So this was my first time, like as an independent contractor, like going out and, you know, and I look back and I'm like, Diversability's earliest supporters were my old colleagues at Goldman, whether it was contributing to a crowdfunding campaign because I wanted to pay for the legal stuff to get us incorporated, whether it was, you know, my friend Justin who paid us, who paid me to come in to his company yeah, I, I think I, I think you'll be able to see it a couple years from now because you're still fresh. But my friends are now investors at VC funds. They are running their own startups. They are getting appointed to fancy positions in the White House. You know, so yeah. Um, so now that I've been, you know, ten years out, over ten years out from my experience, or I guess this year will mark ten years since I worked at Goldman. I you know, keeping those relationships, you know, you're still connected to them on LinkedIn in one way or another, and they all move to different companies and can think of you for different opportunities. Yeah, that's why like recently, like, I I, I actually exactly know what you mean by that. Like, sometimes I look at LinkedIn, I'm like, oh, this guy's a VP now. Oh, crap. That's a, that's pretty high up. This guy's a director now. Wow, this guy was a VP or senior associate when I started. That's uh, that's kind of crazy. And now I, I tell myself, like, Andrew, stop talking shit about banking. Now, 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 it's, now it's time to stop talking crap about the industry. Like, okay, you didn't like it, but just shut, 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 shut up now. <laughs> um, well, I, th- I think it's also like you didn't like it and you still did it. You know, yeah. I think I think there's something to be said about because there are people who don't make who don't who don't do the two years. Well, I did a year and a, a half. I did a year and a half. Full dis- oh. <laughs> full disclosure. All right. I'm that guy right there. I, I quit okay. I quit January of my second year. I was like, I'm out. I'm, I'm on to better things now. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, but I mean, I kind of want to go back into like talking more about like your experience in investment banking in itself. Like, so I mean, 
let's, let's cut the BS. It's investment banking is a very, uh, for lack of a better, white dominated industry, uh, white men specifically, um, just because like tradition has been that way. And for lack of a better words, like, I mean, they're a majority. So it, it makes sense. It makes sense why it's that way. But what was your experience like working in banking, not only as an Asian, but also like as an Asian woman, but an Asian woman with disability? Like, you, feel free to take this whatever direction you want to take it in. But I kind of want to hear about your perspectives on that because, you know, me personally, like being Asian investment banking, um, I think I was pretty, you know, blessed that I was a male, that, you know, even though I was Asian, I didn't feel that much, I guess, like pressure or, um, what's the word, prejudice? Or I, I forgot the exact mm-hmm. word I'm looking for here. Um, but like, what, what was kind of experience? Did you feel you were treated any differently? Um, would you, were you often like looked like overlooked for certain promotions? Like, what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. You know, that is such a, that's such a great question. And I keep coming back to community <laughs> and, and I will share. So not only did I do my junior internship at Goldman, I also was doing a program called SEO. Software engine optimization. Sorry. (laughs) No. uh, Yeah. And at the time, what did, at the time I know, oh, SEO has now, has rebranded themselves to seize every opportunity. Mm. But what SEO was, is it's a really great nonprofit that is focused on getting talented students of color into jobs in financial services. I will say my year, 2009, I think was the last year that they had Asians in, in SEO, but uh, they let Asian women in. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so I actually had, and I actually still keep in touch with my friends from SEO. So there were, you know, I don't know, I can't remember how many were in my SEO class, but we, so all black and brown, all BIPOC folks, juniors and sophomores going into all of the different banks. So not only did I have that community to lean on to, because we would often talk, you know, one of the things I talk about with one of, one of my friends is that I think as BIPOC people, I feel like we so like what got does, the What does playbook. BIPOC stand for? Oh, so BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. It pretty much just <clears throat> means non-white. Mm. And so for those of us who are non-white, we often will talk about how we feel like we got a playbook later in life and are now frantically skimming through the pages to try to figure out what the next what the next play should be. Right. But I'm I'm really grateful that I guess I got to do my internship alongside them because a lot of them are now, you know, over a decade long friends and we have all moved into different roles as well and reflect back on that summer internship. But also kind of reflecting. So a couple interesting things happened. I got really plugged into the different, uh, at Goldman, they called them affinity groups. I got really plugged into a couple of the affinity groups that they had. They had one for women, they had one for disabled employees, and they had one for uh, Asian, Asian American. Uh, You're you're all of them then. So, so I was involved in all of them. And also while I was in college, I co-founded a Taiwanese American club. So what was actually fascinating was one of the co-leads of the Asian affinity group wanted to meet with me to learn more about what I had done around this Taiwanese club because 
you know, this is back in 2009, we're talking about how diverse the Asian diaspora is, Mm -hmm. you know, and how do you make sure you're encompassing South Asians in this as well? And, you know, and we were kind of just talking about some of that. And I don't know, I just reflect on when I was at Georgetown, there were 14 different Asian related groups. Mm -hmm. And I love that. And there was space for all of us, right? And we would collab, we called ourselves collaboration. (laughs) So (laughs) <laughs> and, I love it. <laughs> uh, and, not, and, and not only that, so the other thing about the healthcare group at Goldman was that a lot of the senior leaders were women. Mm. And I actually think that is part of why. So I'll, I'll share two other things around, around women, which is not only in my group were, did I feel like I had mentors and sponsors who were really, you know, and these were VP level and above going to bat for me behind in rooms that I didn't have access to. I also, I also would have like women banker dinners with my analyst friends and we would come together and talk about if we were experiencing anything or anything like that. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I will say I felt probably not the answer you were looking for. I felt very held. Um, it reinforced to me the importance of communities across a bunch of different identities. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, and from a disability, I didn't have much disability community um, but I was affiliated with another nonprofit called Lime Connect, um, and Goldman was one of their partners. And um, and yeah, we we didn't have much much of a community on the disability side, mm-hmm. but I saw the beginnings of what it could look like. And those who were involved in the disability employee resource group were pretty senior, like VP or managing director or level and above. Um, so I also knew that even outside of my group, I also had people who were who were advocating for me. Yeah. But yeah, but but maybe that was part of the playbook too, was just realizing because when I got my summer internship at Goldman, I remember reaching out to anyone that I knew, like not at Goldman, like if they knew anyone at Goldman that I could meet with. Because a lot of times everyone's super busy, right? And you know, we don't know if everyone will respond to a cold email for coffee. And so I was asking for, and I, I will also caveat that I was a very ambitious college student. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I had a lot of energy and I, yeah, I, I just leaned onto whatever networks I did have to try to meet, to try to meet anyone and just try to build my community and my stickiness at this firm. I, I think that's actually so important where it's like, it, it, it made sense how you were able to kind of like, number one, you know, I remember you telling me like, you saw yourself as almost as a career banker. And now it makes a lot of sense to me because like, you saw a lot of people in senior management that for lack of better would look like you, right? Either, I mean, it doesn't have to be exactly Asian one, but it could just be other women of color. And yeah, I think that's- Can I share Can I share one other thing yeah, too? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and, and both of these are public information, but Gary Cohn, who was the president um, at Goldman at the time, was dyslexic. And I think he had been written, he had been featured in a book with Malcolm Gladwell. Mm. And I think there was like a piece of like an article written that it took him, I, for, I forget how long it took him to read like one page of text, but, but anyway, he was dyslexic. He's the president of Goldman Sachs. And a couple years after I left Goldman, Lloyd Blankfein, who was the CEO at the time was diagnosed with lupus. And both of those are disabilities or chronic illnesses, depending on you know, what vernacular you want to use. Mm-hmm. And so I have the number one and the number two people at my firm who have diagnosed disabilities. And they're not full-time disability advocates. You know, they're running a Fortune 
five companies. I mean, the current <laughs> CEO is a DJ. Okay, so. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Oh, and I will say, so David Solomon, David Solomon was the head of banking when I was at Goldman, and a couple of years ago. I actually emailed David. So one of the things that I actually loved about Goldman is that it is a culture of over-communication. Mm. Now you can view the positive and the negative side of it, but it means that you will get a response, even if it's two sentences, even if someone else wrote it. So I wrote him an email um, because they were exploring, they were exploring kind of bringing me in for some disability programming that they were doing. Mm. And so I emailed him and he came back to me and he said, you know, and I don't know who wrote it, but it was something along the lines of, we've been following your career and we're so proud that you're a Goldman alum and all of the work that you're doing to advocate for people with disabilities. And I'm like, the CEO, if it, if it was him or if it wasn't, you know, and he is a DJ. Yeah, <laughs> um, so He responded. He <laughs> but, it, but it reminds me, you know, it reminds me of getting introduced through one of my SEO Seize Every Opportunity or Sponsors, sponsors for Educational Opportunity. Um, through my SEO network, I got introduced to the chief diversity officer of a uh, of a rideshare startup. And even after a couple pings, again, this is a warm intro, I never heard back. And so it was such a stark contrast to me of the culture that Goldman had really instilled that no matter who you are, if you're an analyst, if you're not even at the firm anymore, like you will get a response. And that feels really good. Doesn't that feel good? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because often as a, as a little guy, like you'll never hear from anyone from above. It's like, it's almost like the culture of like, whatever rank you're at, you can only communicate with people at that rank. And if you're talking to someone above that rank, you're like, and it's like almost they're doing you a favor by speaking with you, right? And I mean, I think that's just yeah, fun corporate America in general. Well, I think, you know, now, now like almost 15 years into my career, I notice. So I remember one time I was back in New York and I, and I decided to go visit my colleagues at Goldman. So I went to the Goldman office and I remember walking by uh, one of the managing directors that I used to work with a lot, like when I was an analyst, but now I'm not even at the company anymore and I'm running my own company. Mm -hmm. And I was so nervous. I remember like feeling how I felt as an analyst, like, you know, your heart's beating, you're sweating. You don't like, know if you oh, have crap. all the don't backup data. Up. Don't mess up what you say yeah. right now. How's your weekend? Oh, good. Oh yeah. What'd you do? It's like, oh crap. I can tell about my Friday night. And he's like, oh yeah, I just watched a movie. Or something. Uh, but you know what? I, I, I've been, I've been actively trying. So even in that moment, I remembered how nervous I was and I sped by his office. And then I said, I'm not that person anymore. Mm. And I went back and I knocked on his, his door and I said, hi. And I said, you know, don't know if you remember me, you know, we work together a lot on this stuff. Now here's the work that I'm doing. And I'm like, maybe that's part of like growing up, but it's so fascinating how I felt like I got transported back into that environment. I used to make a joke that you could tell, you could tell if someone was an analyst or an associate or a VP or an MD by how quickly they walked. <laughs> really? Tell, wait, what, what's the, the analyst, joke? What's the joke? The, the analysts are always running. You're running to the printer to try to get all the printouts before uh, the meeting. And then you're running back into the meeting. And then the associates yeah. like kind of still pretty quick, but confident. And then the VPs like a little bit slower, but they're kind of in this in between. And then the MDs walk the slowest. Yeah. Because they they drive they drive the show yeah um, I was definitely running <laughs> yeah no I I remember running and I was wearing and I wore like three and a half inch heels every single day like I'm five feet tall 
And like you said, like a lot of bankers are probably 5'11 plus. And I was trying to operate in a world where literally everyone is a foot taller than me. Mm. I actually do remember a lot of the like the networking events were not my favorite things to go to because everyone is standing a foot above me and having a conversation kind of hurt literally in this bit. airspace. Yeah. yeah. And it hurt her my neck. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, it was a good time. I mean, again, I'll caveat that I was a recruiter my last year at Goldman. So I had a good enough experience during my analyst years to want to stay and try to recruit. And ultimately like part of why I became a recruiter was because not only did I understand the industry, but I love talking to the next generation about the opportunity that this this role could open up doors for you. So what you I think one thing I do oh no, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say one thing I do wish. So at, for me at the time, and now I think there are a lot more opportunities, but in 2008, 2009, I felt like the only types of opportunities that were sought after were either banking or consulting. And I look back at my peers who went into consulting and they get invited back by their consulting firms to do like alumni panels. They're like celebrating new startup founders. And at Goldman, they like find out you're leaving and they tell you to like go right, <laughs> they tell you to go right away. Um, and so yeah. I feel like there's less of a celebration of the alumni community. Maybe that's changing versus for consulting, you know, my friends at BCG and Bain and McKinsey are really celebrated in terms of the careers that they built after their time at the consulting firm. Yeah, I heard Goldman kind of had that culture where it was like, it's almost if you were, you know, this this is joking investment banking where people say like, don't talk about they're recruiting for private equity. I say that's mostly true, but to be honest, like most banks nowadays, like they they number one understand that you are recruiting for private equity, and number two, something actually do encourage it because. It's good for business, right? You go work at a financial buyer, you build that connection down the line. They want to sell companies to you. You'll work at the firm, you used to work at the at the investment bank. It works on that way. But I heard like Goldman kind of like an opposite culture, which like may, may just because like they're like top of the street. So they don't need to build up that connection that if they found you're leaving. They're just like, all right, get out here. You're not you're not a Goldman for life or anything of that sort. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, and also, I think I also want to caveat that like I'm remembering things from 10 years ago. So I, I may have a different, the industry a different has perspective. Changed. But yeah, yeah. Definitely. The industry has changed. But 10 years ago, <laughs> 10 years ago, everything was hush hush. I mean, you'd be out in the morning, you know, doing your PE interview, and then you would come back and not say anything to anybody. You right. would not, you would not say anything. <laughs> mm. Um, but, but I did not end up pursuing that route. I did a couple of interviews, I remember. Um, but, but yeah, it was. Why'd you quit? It's, why did I quit Goldman? Yeah. Just the industry overall. Yeah. So, so two, two different things happened. Um, one was after my second year at Goldman, I got into a program called Teach for China. I don't know if I told you this, Andrew. No. So. Teach for China, it was it was like a, a spinoff of Teach for America. Um, and this was in this was in the Yunnan province in China. Um, and for but people Andrew who are Yang's Taiwanese. Not, Why not teach for tea? Teach for Taiwan. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh no, 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 no. Oh wait. No, I'm telling I'm saying I'm saying the oh, I, I had oh, something that's, before that's, that's Venture for America. Venture. This is a different one. Oh yeah, yeah. So, teach, so sorry. So I so different. I got, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, sorry, so, sorry. <laughs> Sorry. On, so, so, so yeah, there's a two, there's a two step process. So, um, 
So right after my second year, I I think I was trying to figure out, do I want to stay at the bank? Like, what do I want to do? And keep in mind, I studied Chinese and Asian studies when I was in college. So I still had a love of wanting to better understand mainland China. My family's Taiwanese. And I got into this program called Teach for China and to teach English. And so then I was like, I... This has nothing to do with what I just spent the last two years doing. Mm -hmm. It's just what my heart feels compelled to do. So I had actually discussed deferring Teach for China by a year, and um, and Goldman had proposed this opportunity to move to the recruiting team. Mm. Because I will say, for, from a from a mobility perspective, most of the most of the people who participated in mobility moved from one banking group to another. They did they didn't move from banking to recruiting. Or they would move from banking to asset management or investment management. You know, they wouldn't move to <laughs> recruiting. Yeah, they stay so in finance, no, basically. Correct. So no one, so there was no precedent set to be able to do mobility on the recruiting team, which is why I was thinking maybe doing this teach teach for China thing. So ultimately, and I think this is another thing I appreciate about Goldman. If you're good, I think they'll try to figure out how to work with you to make things work. So I will also caveat that before I got my full-time offer at Goldman, I also applied for a Fulbright. This is my senior year of college to go to China. So this China thing had, and I had studied abroad in China, like, and what's so fascinating now is now I like, China's like not really, other than being Asian and Taiwanese, um, and you and I meeting in a, in a group for Asian creators, mm -hmm. um, I guess I'm still starting to get back involved. But so originally I was going to defer going to work at Goldman if I had gotten the Fulbright. Um, my proposal, even though it was highly recommended by my university, I think was seen as too controversial because mm -hmm. it was around the Sichuan earthquake, oh. um, which had happened in, in 08. And I think any mention of earthquake to the Chinese government, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to speak too loudly. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so I didn't, I, 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 I didn't, so I didn't, <laughs> I know. so I didn't, I didn't get the Fulbright. Uh, so I ended up going to Goldman, which was the plan. And so you'll also see that I'm like, I feel like I'm like the master of the backup plans. Mm. So here we are. Now it's 2012. I apply for Teach for China. I get in and I'm trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to defer Teach for China by a year so that I can do this one year on mobility at Goldman. And while I was on the recruiting team, I ended up applying for another program called Venture for America, uh, which was run by a fellow Taiwanese uh, Andrew Yang at the time were founded, co-founded by him um, to work in uh, because they're they they were seeing like talent drain out of a lot of smaller cities to these big cities, New York, San Francisco, um, and they wanted to redistribute talent across America. So I'd gotten into the program, and actually in my farewell email uh, at Goldman in 2013, it said, "Hey, I'm going to go pursue Venture for America." Um, ultimately that opportunity did not work out. Mm -hmm. Sorry, should I say that again? I just, no, that's fine. Did you, you oh, did you hear? Yeah. Did yeah. I heard that. I heard that. All right. Oh, okay. Op opportunity didn't work out. We can say that again. Okay. So the venture for America opportunity did not work out. And after that, I ended up actually getting a job at Bloomberg and, and that started a, a different trajectory as well. So, so yeah, I think. I think I had 
I, I left, I left, oh, but ultimately why I left was I felt like, I felt like my lifestyle wasn't sustainable. I think the interesting thing was that when I moved to recruiting, a lot of my banking friends were like, wow, your hours must be so much better. And what I realized and what I came to appreciate, another thing I appreciate about Goldman mm-hmm. is that everyone works banking hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no matter, no matter, but you know, we were talking about work ethic. I just, no matter who you were at the firm, they commanded or demanded a level of accept, exceptionalness or exceptionality that, uh, and a level of operating that it was all, it felt banking level. Mm. And, and part of why, so like you said, I went into, I did go into banking thinking I would be a career banker. I wanted to experience the slowness of my walk as I progressed in my career. Yeah. Um, but when I moved to recruiting, what I thought was interesting was that I was almost doing the same role as the most senior person on my team. And I, I wasn't sure if, if that's what I wanted. And I think, I think one of the things I've learned, and maybe this is a millennial trait, is that my number one value is learning. Like, I just love learning. I love learning different things. If I look at all of the different career pivots I've had, they've been somewhat connected, but not really, but they've all exercised different parts and helped me gain new skills for my toolkit. So, so yeah, so I left Goldman thinking I was going to do this Venture for America opportunity. I would have been one of the older fellows in the program Mm -hmm. and ultimately it didn't work out and I ended up pursuing a different path. Yeah. So, you know, looking at your LinkedIn, it seems like you were kind of hopping around different opportunities from Bloomberg to Revolt Media. Um, How, how did you end up you know, where you are at today with, you know, running, I'm assuming you're running diversity full time as of now, since like, uh, 2015. So what, 2017, what, yeah. 2017, what, what was that experience like? Just like hopping around different jobs and, you know, I, I guess like kind of like, you know, advice to young, younger generation, like what is your advice to like job hopping? <laughs> like working yeah, in multiple um, places. So the last time I probably applied to a job and didn't have a referral was actually Goldman. So I ended up getting my job at Bloomberg because I got referred over to a production assistant role through my alumni network. I actually ended up getting my job at Revolt because someone I worked with at at Bloomberg was actually an investor in Revolt and saw that I had made this transition from banking to media. And he's like, well, here's an opportunity to combine both your interest in banking and media together, now doing banking at a media company. Um, And then then the last startup job that I had, I found through a women's community that I was in um, and ended up getting referred there. I was only there for six months. Um, I, it was, it was not my strong suit. And I also want to highlight, you know, I think a lot of people will look at my LinkedIn highlight reel and say, wow, you're good at everything. You achieved all these things. I got fired from a job. Like if you're not good, you're going to get fired or you're going to decide to leave. Or if you're not like super happy there or don't feel like you're thriving or learning, Mm. um, you're going to leave as well. So, so yeah, I think for me, you know, I do, I do get nervous. I mean, now I've been in my current role for six, over six years now. Um, but I did get nervous in those early years of people potentially looking at my resume and thinking, wow, she moved around a lot. 
But I think it all comes back to the story and how you talk about it. So if I have advice for your listeners, I guess I have two big pieces of advice. And one is the, I think we put so much pressure on ourselves for the summer internships that will then lead into full-time opportunities. And most of us who did banking as a summer intern and then did the analyst program, the majority of us are not in banking anymore. And I feel like we just put so much pressure on ourselves when we are 18, 19, 20 years old to to feel like we should have our entire career figured out. So you're going to change your mind and yeah. that's okay. And yep. it, and it's it's actually hilarious because if I think about the, my peers who were more concerned about my career than wishing me a good time studying abroad, now I look back and you know, I, I don't know, I could, I feel, I feel like way more fulfilled and I get paid more now than I did when I was in banking. Um, the second thing is the power of your network. Like never, you know, I think there's this saying that says that your network is your net worth. And, you know, even if it's just connecting with someone on LinkedIn and not having an active relationship per se, but subtly seeing like, oh, hey, this person's here now. Or like, oh, hey, this person posted this update. You never know where people are going to end up that, you know, even even now, I, I've really been reflecting on how that person I met at Goldman became our first paid client at Diversability. Mm. And even, you know, later in a couple of months, I'm going to do a speaking engagement because my friend now works at this extremely large finance payments related company. And I met her through a women's group and she pitched me as a speaker, you know? And so I think just staying in each other's spheres and always like having no expectation of where a relationship is going to go and, and just, just continuing to grow your network and nurture it. I think that's my advice number two. And then I, I now realize I have a third piece of advice, which is it, it's, it's really all about the story. So if I look at all of the different pivots that I made, I can say, hey, I studied finance and accounting in college. This is why I decided to pursue investment banking, finance. Yeah. And then while I was in finance, I really loved doing informational interviews with kids who, or not kids, with students who wanted kids. to ex who wanted to kids. explore <laughs> who wanted to explore a career in banking and I loved it so much that I became a recruiter. And I loved my experience in financial services so much that I now wanted to be able to be on the receiving end of seeing you know because the news that we report at Bloomberg moves markets. You know, it helps shapes decisions people are making. So then I could say, "Hey, I have this experience not only studying finance, but working in banking, I can bring that knowledge, but now be on the the producer side of things, and uh, and I ended up getting poached from from that role back. But but then even going into Revolt, it's like now I've worked in the media industry, I've worked at a TV station, I know what it's like to be in the newsroom, and I also have finance experience, so now I can help run your financial model of this TV station that you're looking to launch. Um, and then the, that last startup job that I had. Um, actually leaned more on the community, the community aspect that I had been starting to do as a, as a side hustle, working on diversability um, and leaning into, leaning into that. So the story matters in the end. Um, yeah. <laughs> so if, if, if you move around a lot, there's a reason why you did. And I think that making sure that you have an opportunity to explain that 
is is helpful. What was that feeling like when you were leaving investment banking to go pursue something that I guess wasn't in the high finance world anymore? Like, I think one of the biggest pressure. So I, you know, I most of my most of the people I talk to are people trying to get into investment banking, but I've also had the pleasure to speak with people currently in investment banking who have sent me DMs, being like, "Hey, I want to quit this job. I don't enjoy what I'm doing, uh, but I I can't let the money go. Like, the money is so important to me." Um, like if I go do something else, I don't know, I'll make as much. And I, I think a lot of people will be like, uh, suck it up. Like money is not everything. But I'm going to be honest, like if you got into banking, you probably value money. You probably do to some extent. Um, so I don't know if you went through the same process when you were quitting investment banking. Were you ever wondering like, am I going to make as much? Um, and like, if, if so, like how did you kind of like, you know, what, what, what was something that helped you like get past that mindset? of like, would I ever make as much as I can if I stayed in like the, not even banking, like just like the finance world overall? Yeah. Um, I will say I'll lean on one of the lessons I learned as a disabled person. So I will meet a lot of people who come to me and they say, I can't imagine having to relearn how to write with your non-dominant hand. And, or I can't imagine, you know, I was in a wheelchair for four months after the accident. I'm going to be like, I can't imagine. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I didn't like wake up that day being like, today I'm going to paralyze my arm so that I can relearn how to write. But but I figured it out, right? And I want to come back to this, like, figure it out. Like, to me, this is my plug for disabled people. Like, disabled yeah. people, we have had to operate in a world that wasn't built for us. So we have had to figure it out. And I relate this back to, like, scrappy entrepreneurship as well. Is like, okay, like, I don't know how to write with my left hand, but I'm going to have to figure it out. Like, hey, I don't know how to type with one hand, but I'm going to have to figure it out. Hey, I don't know how I'm going to carry 40 pitch books, but I'm going to figure it out, right? And so I think that when, you know, part of it is those of us who decide to pursue investment banking, we tend to be a little bit more risk averse than some of our other peers who maybe might go to large tech companies or go the startup route. And so we go there for the steady paycheck and that there is a two-year enlist program, you know, and that mm -hmm. there are exit opportunities the into other programs. Payout. The yeah. promise of the payout. The promised um, land. <laughs> but I think, I think because I had so many drastic pivots, I started to exercise that muscle that I'm going to have to figure it out, right? So like the first pivot, even from banking to recruiting, I will say you know, given that so many of my peers came to me and their first remark was, oh, your hours must be that much, must be so much better, you know, already made me, you know, it wasn't the typical path. So already in that third year, I was doing not the typical path. Then the yeah. fact that I left to go do a nonprofit fellowship program, which didn't ultimately end up pinning out, is like you're leaving getting paid six figures to go make 30 to 40 K, you know, that's how, at least that's how much was listed that you could make on the website on the venture for America website at the time. Um, but I think that I, I just believed that, I don't know. I feel like I've just always been like mission driven and I did have like one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was working at Goldman was I didn't really live that much of a banker lifestyle. Like the apartment that I lived in was a one bedroom that had been converted into three and I paid a thousand dollars a month. Um, and, and you're York? laughing. This New is York? New York, New York. Yeah. 
Um, and, and you're laughing. So depending on where you live, $1,000 rent can be a lot or a little. But for by New York standards, that's it like nothing. Little. It's very yes. little. Yeah. Like even yeah. people who share apartments are probably paying like 1500 to 2000 at least. Um, so I So I don't know. I think part of it is like daughter of Asian immigrants. My parents didn't have much growing up. So even though I was making six figures right out of college, I still felt it still felt like 30K. <laughs> and so I was broke mindset. <laughs> I know. So so I was and, you know, Andrew, you and I have talked about. This, so I was very aggressively saving. But I wonder if I was saving pretty aggressively in those. So not. So what I would do is I would max out my 401k first because there was a matching yep. program. And then I, I would too. max out my Roth IRA. This is too. not financial advice. This is my own personal. And then the rest, like, you know, uh, rent, you know, I would section out a portion for rent. And then the rest was like extra credit money that like if extra I, credit. yeah, no, I, I call it extra credit money. But yeah. now I'm actually in a place, I I don't know. I feel like, and this is going to sound a little woo-woo and maybe not resonate as much with your audience, but I feel like if you're doing what you're meant to do, mm-hmm. things will things will work out. Like I make I make almost three times more than I did at Goldman with my bonus now as a creator, speaker, entrepreneur. Um, I I you know we also have to pay our team, so that's that's another expense, but yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I I will also share in the early days after I got fired from that startup job, I not only applied for unemployment, but I also decided to Airbnb out part of my apartment. And I I don't, you know, it's only in the last two or three years that I've started being able to significantly monetize in a way to financially support myself. But in those early days, I think kind of that like figure it out mentality it's like, okay, well, if the thing that I'm doing right now isn't generating enough income, how can I take advantage of, I don't know, the sharing or the gig economy to try to make some of that up in the interim uh, and at least have some cushion until I can figure out, figure it out. But, but a lot of people don't want to take that path, you know? Yeah. Um, but I that's think like what, five years, seven years of like, just like being in like the pit well also keep in mind so so yeah if i if i think about my salary it was like goldman goldman salary from 2010 to 2013 and then um i was paid 18 dollars an hour as a production assistant at bloomberg so made quite a drop lower uh from just a little bit just a little bit a little bit um, i was a bullet shopper restart in 2021 just a little bit lower (laughs) yeah like you know a a 70 percent pay cut um but 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 i again it was this I don't know. I think part of it was just the excitement to learn something so different and also to challenge myself, like, can I actually do this? And during those Bloomberg years, you know, where, when I was paid $18 an hour, I was um, I was an extra in a commercial. I was selling jewelry on the side. You know, I was like doing, doing a lot of other things. And then um, I ended up uh, going from contractor to full-time. So I transitioned uh, out of productionist into a full-time role, got paid a little bit more. And then when I went back to Revolt, I was back on my banking salary. So now I'm back at Revolt, banking salary, and then moved to a startup, took a little bit of a cut there. So I've kind of, you know, seen the ebb and flow of my own salary so that even it it isn't, it hasn't really, it's only really been, yeah, over the past six years of me trying to figure it out on my own as a full-time entrepreneur or independent contractor for other people. So I would say if you... And I will also highlight that two years, 
two years before I got fired, I was doing diversibility as a side hustle. So Mm -hmm. I'm really grateful that I had full-time paycheck, the the paycheck from my full-time job, in addition to piloting a lot of things around diversibility. Like, are we just going to do events? Are we going to build out a community? You know, how, like, we ended up getting reached out to by by the New York Public Library after a couple of months wanting to pay us to curate a couple speakers to talk about their experience navigating, like going to the library um, it, with with different types of disabilities. And so I was like, someone wants to pay us? And then I was like, mm-hmm. oh, there's value in this experience. And like, we can actually build a business around this because there, to me, there's monetary value in our lived experience expertise. Um, and now- you know, over the last couple of years, I think, I think we're seeing that we can always do better, but I know that was very long winded, but I just wanted to let your, your audience members know that, um, if you can, I I guess the last thing I'll say is that other people's opinions, I let other people's opinions of what I was doing sway too much of how I lived my life. Um, that when I stopped caring, and maybe that that transition happened when I was like in my 30s. That's when I started to do, I, I started to do more things that not only filled my cup, like, I don't know, spiritually, but also like financially. Fulfillment. <laughs> fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Fulfillment in all different ways. So, so it's going to feel weird because I will still have, you know, my mom even, my mom calls what I do monkey business. And I hope that she she will see, you know, all of the income that I made last year um, and the fact that it is more than I ever made in banking um, and stop calling. And then, you know, she'll always ask me, like, when are you going to go back to Goldman? Um, yeah. You know, T- parents. Tiffany, uh, when are you going to get the job? Uh? <laughs> <laughs> um, but to see that I can be successful in my own way, you know, I think that's a way that we're kind of like breaking breaking that intergenerational pattern of like you have to only have this one job. Like banking is the only way you can get a, a stable income to now being like, you know, Andrew, you and I were both creators. There's real income in this space. So, so yeah, I, I will say like focus, I guess the, the message from all of that was um, other people are going to have opinions about what you do, but I think if you just stay true and if you feel like wholeheartedly that this is the right thing that you're meant to be doing, like the universe, you know, there's that, there's this quote from the alchemist by Paulo Coelho, where it says like, the universe will conspire to like have things happen for you, um, the way that they're meant to. Hmm. What, what's kind of your take on, you know, just to piggyback off of that, like, do you encourage people to, let's say they do, cause I think there's like two types of individuals, like there's, there's an individual that doesn't care about like this whole, like, self-exploration, doing things on our own and being purpose-driven. Like a lot of people, um, as I've learned it, just kind of want to work a job and just enjoy the weekend and enjoy a chill life, which is like great. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. That sounds pretty amazing. Um, unfortunately, I'm not like that. I'm the guy who goes like, I need to chase like my vision, my mission and like what I want to be doing. Um, but to the people that do want to do that, what's kind of your advice in terms of like, do you recommend people to just go for it or do you or do you recommend people to be like keep your job keep um keep building things on the side um and then see where that ends up eventually or do you think there's merits of just being like 
screw it, just dive in into deep end, and then you'll learn a lot as you're in, in the deep end. I'm personally more of the former, which is like have the backup plans, you know. Um, I will say that I'm really grateful that by the time I got fired, Diversibility was already generating income. We had already figured out a system in place to work with different corporates and organizations through a speaking perspective. And if I hadn't had that, I probably would have just found found my next job right away. And interestingly enough, after I got fired, what I actually told myself was, I'm going to work on this Diversibility thing and continue to apply for jobs until I find my next thing. Mm-hmm. And then opportunity for Diversibility came along you know, the one with my friend from Goldman, another one came along, you know, and, and these are with checks attached to them as well. And, and I'll spend six years, right? And so, but if those checks, you know, if the unemployment had run out, and if I hadn't figured out a way to monetize, like I probably, I probably would have, would have found a job. So, mm. so yeah, I'm not, I'm not of, of the saying that, Because even now, if I look at my work, a lot of people are like, wow, like your work is so meaningful. And I'm like, sometimes it feels like I'm carrying a weight or a burden of responsibility to try to have a new project, move something forward, like have some new initiative that's going to positively impact the disability justice movement, like always continue to be fighting. Um, and I think about how a lot of us in the disability community sometimes describe ourselves as warriors, like at least in my, in, with my injury, we call ourselves like brachial plex, BPI warriors, brachial plexus injury warriors. But if you're a warrior, you're fighting all the time. That's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some times in this work that I feel so defeated and deflated. And I'm just like, man, I'm chasing after the next client. I'm trying to find the next partnership. You know, this like now we're in another period of economic volatility. Like, are we going to be as successful this year? Like, do we have enough to pay our team? Um, so I, I guess what I want to say, I read this book back in 2008, actually it was an assignment as part of my UBS program. We had to read, we had to read a book called good to great by, Mm -hmm. I think it was by Jim Collins. And in the book, he has something called, he's, he encourages you to have something called your hedgehog concept, which I actually think is what other people know as Ikigai. So I wonder if he like appropriated it, but pretty mm-hmm. much it's the intersection of what are you good at? What do you love doing? And what's going to fuel your economic engine? Because mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of times we only have two out of those three things. If you're able to find something at the intersection of those three, then that that might potentially be your calling. And at the same time, I will just share one other thing, which is one thing that I really appreciated about my time at Goldman was I had time to serve on nonprofit boards. And I also had time to make very generous donations <laughs> um, because I was in a, a, a financial position to do so. Yeah, And so I think impact and advocacy can look a lot of different ways. And so if you, you know, if you are in your banking job and making an impact is writing a $10,000 check, like I think about that $5,000 check that I got from my friend at Goldman, um, that felt life-changing to me (laughs) as I was trying to build up my, my disability work. So 
I think that, and, and 10,000 or 5,000 or even $500, it might not seem like a lot to you, but depending on who you're giving that gift to or how you want to use that, it could really change someone's life. So there's no good, there's no bad to any profession. Um, if you can find your ikigai or your hedgehog concept, that that would be great. But if you're only fulfilling two out of the three in the things that you're doing, make sure you have another thing that you're doing that fulfills that third, right? <laughs> um, but I I think that I I've, I have never given the advice. I, I can only base the advice on my own personal experience, which is I did the side hustle thing for a few years. I actually got a little bit burnt out. It was too much to be working full time and then doing, trying to build up the side hustle. Yeah. But I'm glad I did it in that way so that when something drastic happened, like getting fired, and you know, right now we are in a period where there are a lot of layoffs that are happening, is that like I had a backup plan that could help float me for a little while if I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. I I, I think that's like actually really true. It's like you got to find something you enjoy, you're good at, but last but not least, it should probably make money. If it doesn't make money, you're going you're gonna to run into problems down the line. Um, but no, that all this has been super insightful and I am, I kind of want to wrap up the podcast with this question. I always ask everyone on my podcast to wrap it up. Um, you may already answer this already, so feel free to go back to something said earlier if it is, but what advice would you give your 18 year old self if you're to time trot back today and to meet her again? Hmm. I actually have an Instagram post where I, where I responded to this. Um, and I'm like, I want to plug the Instagram post, but what really stood out <laughs> to me, no, what really, yeah, what really stands out to me advice for my younger self is like your story matters and who you are matters. And simply by existing, you are valuable and worthy. You don't have to prove anything to anyone. And the last thing I would tell her, because when I was 18, I still wasn't public about my disability or the car accident is that I don't know I can't I can't wait for I can't wait for you to see who you become but I also can't wait for the world to learn more about who you are and the gifts that you have just by being yourself. Wow. Well spoken. That's a good one. That's a good one. Well Tiffany, it's been a pleasure to have you. Why don't you uh, plug your social so that people know where they can find you? Sure. So if you want to follow me, it's at I'm Tiffany U. That's the letter I, the letter M, followed by my first and last name. And that's like all platforms, TikTok, Instagram. All, all um, platforms. Although, all I, platforms. you know, I did go through a period of time because Diddy, uh, Sean Diddy Combs, his was I am Diddy. And then I was like, mine is I'm, should I change it to I am? But, oh. but now I'm stuck. <laughs> now, now I'm just I'm Tiffany U. Just yeah. the letter I, just the letter M, not I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'll I'll plug your I'll plug your um your TikTok, your Instagram, and your LinkedIn or YouTube. Which one do you? Prefer? Oh, LinkedIn. Like, oh, so LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn. I, I'm actually Tiffany A U. Um, Got it. There, there are a lot of Tiffany U's, so I had to put my middle initial <laughs> in there. But wait, ultimately, yeah. you can actually you can just go to my website tiffanyu.com. Um, mm. And it will have all of the links on there too. If Sweet. I, I feel like we made people confused by telling them all the different. Yeah. Um, 
but no, no worries. I can edit this part out. If I, I'm gonna listen back on it. If it, get, if it gets confusing, I'll just edit it out and be like, all right, here's the website. Go to. No, I, <laughs> I like, website, I, I, I like that. I like that it was confusing. Yeah, there, there are many Tiffany U's. We were all born in the 1980s. I think yeah. the singer <laughs> Tiffany was just really popular in Taiwan. Yeah, in Tiffany, a lot of Tiffany, a lot of Michelle's, <laughs> a lot of Jessica's. <laughs> All right, Tiffany, it's great having you. Um, other than that, like, thank you everyone for tuning back into the mailing podcast, and we'll catch you guys all next time. All right, have a good rest of your day, Tiffany. Talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>